This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, a British black activist remembers the Kambahi River Collective, an historic gathering of black feminists. An African scholar examines why the continent is still not free of foreign domination. And Mumia Abu-Jamal says the COVID-19 epidemic has laid bare the weakness of U.S. institutions. But first, the Black is Back Coalition is marking its 11th year of activism by holding a school on electoral politics via Zoom on June 13th and 14th. The electoral school has become a kind of legacy program of the coalition, according to Black is Back chairman Omali Yeshitela. It has become that, and I think it's one of the most important things that we've done. As you know, since the founding of the coalition almost 11 years ago, we've been extremely concerned with how the electoral process is monopolized by petty bourgeois sellout sector of our population, which gives the impression to the world that they really speak for the rest of us because many of the organizers and militants and sometimes outright revolutionaries have not participated and you haven't heard their voices. Uh, the voices of the revolution were still quieted, silenced in many regards by repression some many years ago. And so we've been out of that process now with the coalition during this school. It's opened up the door for participation in the electoral process for many people who would want to do that. And it also gives us an opportunity to put forth a national black political agenda for self-determination so that it is the electoral arena is not something that uh, is automatically monopolized by a sector of our population that does not speak for black people in this country or any place else. So we have invaded that system, that process, and every year now, this is the fourth in a row, uh, we've been doing what we can to help ordinary people understand how we can access the electoral process and how we can introduce issues that's important to our liberation. Now, let's be clear. The Black is Back Coalition is not just encouraging black folks to run for every office under Democrat and Republican and any other party banner. That's true. And I think that's one of the things that we really want to emphasize, that what we are saying is that we want to give the people an ability to participate, to destroy the monopoly of that petty bourgeoisie. And we want to provide people, we went through a long process, maybe a year-long process, of having conventions in some 11 different states in the District of Columbia. We had a national convention in Washington, D.C., where we came up and got unity with the National Black Political Agenda for Self-Determination. So it's not just something that came from me or came from other persons on the steering committee, but the people had an opportunity to participate in debating and saying, yes, we want this, and that's where that National Black Political Agenda for Self-Determination came from. And that's really important. For the longest period of time, we've been faced with a situation where people use words like black self-determination, but it hasn't been defined. So anybody could be for black self-determination, and they could be a Democrat or Republican. They could be for the worst kinds of crimes against our people and characterize what they're doing as black self-determination. 
when we gave it a definition, we created specific points that said this is the national black political agenda for self-determination for black people. Yes, and the Black is Back Coalition does not endorse anyone who does not endorse that black agenda for self-determination. That's right. It's not good enough just to be black. It's absolutely necessary to endorse that because, as you know, many people were ecstatic, almost into an intoxicated frenzy around the candidacy and the election of Barack Hussein Obama, who was one of the worst things that happened to us in some ways. But Obama said nothing that uh, spoke to our interests. In fact, he spoke always against our interests. So therefore, what we've done is we're struggling to raise the ante and to also try and contribute to political education for masses of people that say, if you're going to participate in the electoral process, you can't just be satisfied with somebody because they have black skin. Here is a program that speaks to the interests of African people. Here's our own agenda, and everybody has to speak to that. The Black Agenda for Self-Determination is a matter of principle, but every year there are new issues, and this is the year of the COVID plague. It is, and there are new issues, but in every issue, and every situation, every year, even when we look at the new issues, we still are faced with the situation that these new issues are issues that we confront while uh, being a subjugated population, a colonized population. The Black is Black Coalition stands high on the principle of self-determination. So even when we engage, look at this question of COVID-19, we are not put in a situation where we find ourselves fighting to try to strengthen the oppressor by the way, which is using COVID-19 as a cover to even introduce more stringent control of our communities by the state, by the colonial state. So we're saying that even as we talk about that, we're still talking about black community control of the police. We're still talking about that. We still don't want the police, even under the cover of using COVID-19, to exercise a greater colonial authority in our communities. So, yeah, that's one of the issues, COVID-19, but we call it colonial virus because that is exactly what's happening. If you look at what's happening with this virus, you see that it's targeting African people in this country and around the world. I mean, not only do we see what's happening in New Orleans and Louisiana, for example, that's come the epicenter of it, where everywhere you see that concentration of African people, we see, I think, something like 60% or so of the COVID-19 infections occur in a majority African counties in this country. Look at even in the United Kingdom, in England, and in Wales, African people are four times more likely to die of COVID-19. And then when, even when you account for the kinds of disease, other disease that colonialism bring us, such as hypertension and asthma, etc. Even when all of those other underlying causes, as they like to call them, are accounted for, then we're still dying at almost twice the number as white people in England and Wales. So it's a colonial virus, and we are clear on that, and I think we will see that expressed uh, during this school that we're going to be having on June 13th and 14th. In overall numbers, the U.S. has by far the highest fatality rate in the world. What does that say about the U.S. society and its structures? I think it says a few things, but I think critical to that is, number one, as quiet as it's kept, the United States does not have a health care system. It doesn't have a health care system. Like everything else in the United States and under capitalism in general, but especially in the United States, because the politics and policies in the United States are contaminated by the fact that we've got all of these colonized people, Africans, Mexicans, indigenous people, etc., that color all of the politics here. 
So in the United States, what you have is not a health care system, but the health care itself, as it's characterized, the medical care is a commodity. There is no health care system. It's every company, every corporation that can sell something does that. But since the protection, since the kinds of instruments necessary to protect people, masks, ventilators, and other things like that were not profitable, they weren't produced. And so that's one aspect of it. And then certainly when you see the disease concentrated in African communities, et cetera, there still is not that much inspiration to make it happen. Even the World Health Organization is doing everything it can to denounce any effort that's being made that goes outside of what the pharmaceutical corporations are putting forth as solutions to this problem. So it says a lot. It says that America, first of all, it doesn't have a health care system. Secondly, it speaks to how capitalism itself works against the interests of the people, works against the health of the people, et cetera, and capitalism continues to dominate in this country, perhaps more than others. And then one of the reasons capitalism is so vicious and effective inside the United States is because of the high proportion of black people, Mexicans, indigenous people, et cetera, in this country that colors and taints every discussion, every policy that's being promoted and encourages a lack of care for working people at large inside this country. A number of people have run for office after endorsing the Black Agenda for Self-Determination, and some of them have won, and some of them will be at the school on June 13th and 14th. That's right. We are especially happy, of course, you know, our friend Charles Barron, who's built quite a machine of his own, uh, speaking to anti-colonial, anti-imperialist politics and self-determination there in Eastern Europe. Yeah, he'll be there, and, and that's extremely important for us because we need somebody like Barron who has endorsed the National Black Political Agenda, who will speak to all the issues and ha- has actually, from his position first as city council person and then subsequently as an assembly person, New York State assembly person, has spoken out and put forth legislation that attempts to pursue different platforms from our self-determination platform. And then we've got Jesse Todd who is in St. Louis now, and he is an older person in the 18th Ward there. He has adopted it, and he speaks very strongly. He's very concerned and openly fighting against uh, those sellouts in our communities who do hold political office and what have you, and himself is a target of some of them. He's going to be speaking and participating in the school as well, and they bring a tremendous amount of experience with them. In addition to bringing experience with them, they also bring the fact that they occupy office. And so that is something that should help people who may be timid otherwise about raising these important political questions on their platforms running for office. That should help them to have the courage to do it as well. So tell us about some of the people that will be speaking at the Electoral School this time around. I think you know many of them, and certainly our comrade Nellie Bailey from right there in New York, from Harlem, who's been an activist uh, for the longest period of time who has been on the front lines in anti-imperialist struggle, self-determination struggle. Then we've got Reverend Edward Pinckney from Benton Harbor, Michigan, who is a preacher, but who is better known for the work that he's done in the community there, fighting against World Foods, a big corporation. And also he's initiated campaigns for recall. One of the recall campaigns that he initiated resulted in him and being arrested and actually jailed. He's going to be there. He's going to be teaching us how to do recall campaigns and why the recall campaigns are significant. So that need, that weapon can be uh, in the arsenal 
of our movement. So people get there and they treat us wrong, don't treat us well, then we have the recall option. We have people like Belinda Parker Brown out of uh, St. Louis, Missouri, who heads up Louisiana United International, who's doing incredible work, especially around the prison question, but other issues as well. So there's a host of uh, people who will be involved in this and all of them. What I'm so really proud of is that everybody we're talking about has on-the-ground experience. Uh, Ralph Corner out of New York from the Lynn Stewart Committee. Uh, Betty Davis out of New York uh, fighting for uh, community control of schools. Diapola Bala out of Philadelphia, black community control of the police. All of these things will be represented. Then, of course, our vice chair, Lisa Davis out of Newark, New Jersey, who heads up the health working group and especially has been dealing with this coronavirus issue. So it's going to be a dynamic, a really important panel of people who will be discussing these issues. And again, these are people who made their own reputation through struggling uh, on the ground for our people for self-determination. All of the previous electoral schools held by Black is Back Coalition were face-to-face, but this one is Zoom. How do people become part of it? Well, how they become part of it continues to be more or less the same way they get in touch with the Black is Back Coalition. They go to blackisbackcoalition.org. Blackisbackcoalition.org, there they will find information. They will find how to connect with the process through Zoom, and hopefully they will be inspired by what it is they see. So that's the best way. Go to blackisbackcoalition.org on your computer. That's where we'll be putting out all the information about connecting with the school via Zoom. That was Black is Back Coalition Chairman Omali Yeshitela speaking from St. Petersburg, Florida. U.S. prisons are hot spots for the coronavirus with many of the nation's two million prisoners on lockdown. Mumia Abu-Jamal is North America's best-known political prisoner. He says the whole country was left naked to the contagion. To say that the U.S. was ill-equipped to handle this virus is understatement. The medical system was overwhelmed. The political system was outmatched. And most other systems simply shut their doors, went home, and battened down the hatches as if waiting for a great storm. But what kind of storm is silent and unseen? Apparently, a viral one. Are vaccines the solution? Apparently not. For the best vaccines claim about 40% efficacy, which means, of course, that 60% of the vaccinated population find that it isn't effective. And who really believes that the government can or will vaccinate over 300 million people? The government that can't find the people it promised to give money to will vaccinate over 300 million people? I mean, who believes that? If this were as claimed an America first government, what would an American last government look like? And how can there be an America first policy when Americans come in dead last? In a few days, 100,000 Americans, men, women, and children will be dead with a level of sheer incompetence that is frankly stunning. The nation is marching headlong into the abyss. From Imprisoned Nation, 
This is Mumia Abu Jamal. Black people from across the African diaspora this weekend celebrated African Liberation Day. But the African continent is still not free. We spoke to Indibizi Christian Ani, a scholar at the Institute for Security Studies in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Many African states after independence in the early 1960s and 1950s are not independent per se. Especially they are not independent economically and they are not independent even to stretch it to politically. So a lot of things are dependent, a lot of other states dependent on external actors to come to the rescue for particular missions. So for instance, France was being called upon by uh, former Francophone countries, own countries, to come and address some of the security threats, including economic challenges. So then it becomes a matter of re-inviting the SOL colonizers to come and perpetrate imperialism within the continent. But now the idea of the African solutions came about because there is a growing sense of misgiving around the reliability, which is one, of external actors within the continent. So like, for instance, the Rwandan genocide shows that while we have like external troops on the ground and also national machineries and all that, the Rwandan genocide happened. Second, we talk about efficiency. Having efficiency, a lot of time, external actors are concerned about having a quick face to solutions. So for instance, in Libya, they came, bombed Gaddafi out of the space, and then that is it. But then the problem in Libya persists up to today. And then we talk about the motive of external assistance. What is their motive? Is it about re-engagement that is filled with ideas of racial oppression or trying to meddle in African issues as well? So that becomes a context that gave rise to the idea of African solutions to African problems. And this kind of crystallized, especially at the time of the re-transformation of the continental body, which is the organization of the African unity, into the African Union in 2001. So this whole discussion, the whole idea of African solutions to African problems became quite noticeable at the time. But just to add one more thing, that the idea of African solutions is, is not a new invention. It's not something that came out of the blue in the 1990s. It is something that has been there over time in the idea of Pan-Africanism, in the idea of, for instance, when Marcus Gavin was talking about Africa for Africans, Kwame Nkrumah talking about African liberation and unity for common purpose, and then Ali Mazri was also talking about things like past Africana. So the idea is more or less to give more urgency to those kind of existing ideals that we need to do African solutions. The Africans need to be at the center of solutions to their problems. Yes, African unity, pan-Africanism is always the rhetorical backdrop, but on the ground, we don't see even one major peacekeeping mission in Africa that is not bankrolled and to some degree controlled by outside powers. Yes, you're very right on that. And one of the things that I noted in the article is that in terms of agency, as in I noted three things that the three solutions speak about. One is about agency. One is about how do we talk about the conceptual aspects 
of it, of missions and different ideas about uh, security within the continent. And then the third part is looking at the innovations around addressing those issues. So when you see one of the major places where Africans play a major role now is that there are a lot of African faces in peace missions. So the missions in the Sahel, in Mali, the mission in Somalia, the mission in the Lake Chad Basin, you will find, unlike before, when you find the UN troops co-opting several countries across the globe to organize missions, one of the key things you see now is that the African faces are there. But then, as you rightly mentioned, that the problem then becomes about finances. Who finances it? Because the person who pays also has control over how the mission is being mandated and how it's being folded and how it's, everything is being initiated. So that becomes the major challenge within those kind of missions. And you, as you rightly said, all those are funded by foreign actors. And it all depends on how do we liberate ourselves from the economic challenges, the economic bondages and the challenges to come to a bigger realization that we need to be at the forefront of addressing our challenges. So two ways around that, as you pointed out. One is that the global economy has already situated Africa in a position where it has to meet up to the certain demands and certain kind of agreements with external actors. But our leaders have not also shown foresight in trying to break break loose from the chains or economic policies that continues to be predatory against them because of the afraid of the repercussions and the short-term challenges that it will give. So that remains our problem up to today. Well, let's look at one of the biggest peacekeeping missions in Africa, Somalia. It's generally understood that the Somali operation is really run by the CIA, although the African Union claims to be the authorizing agency, and that the U.S. involvement in Somalia begins with an aggression, the Ethiopian invasion of Somalia, backed by the United States, and that that invasion occurred when Somalia itself was relatively at peace. So how can we even call the Somali operation a peacekeeping mission when it interrupted the peace? Yes. I think that is one of the major arguments and major challenges that we continue to face up to today. The idea that Somalia was already getting to reorganizing itself after the fall of Barre in the early 1990s, Somalia was trying to refashion itself and come out of that challenges. Obviously, it's filled with a lot of conflict and a lot of power tussles. But then at the early 1990s, things began to show up and then there was a semblance of peace that was brought in by the Islamic Courts Union. But the challenge was then that the union was not favorable to the U.S. government. They were seen as harboring kind of terrorist elements and the likes. And that is why the U.S.-backed Ethiopian intervention happened. But then you realize that that becomes the major challenge that we continue to face Whenever peace happens or governance has to take place within the continent, there has to be a European power or a U.S. power that kind of sanctions it in the first place. 
So as it stands right now, the African Union is trying to make effort to correct what has already, the mistakes that have already happened, but it's still within the context of what has happened. The African Union is, was not as strong then, and then currently it cannot go and unwind what has happened in the past. It's now only working within the framework of what the global order or what more external powers have already instituted. Let's talk about the United Nations peacekeeping mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I believe it's one of the biggest and longest lasting in the world. But in the Democratic Republic of Congo, since the bloodletting in neighboring Rwanda back in 1994, at least six million people have died. And most observers are put the blame largely on the governments of Rwanda and Uganda, who are firm U.S. allies, but they have not been punished one bit. Yes. But when you look at the situation also, it's a little bit quite complicated because in the DRC, the involvement of Rwanda and Uganda were also for their own survival as well as a state. So it also involved like them also involving in the conflict also to have counteroffensives against those specific groups that were seen as rebel groups that were operating within the DRC setting. So it also becomes quite of that. But I think when we look at the problem in the DRC, it is a whole multi-pronged problem. I think the whole problem in Africa can be located within the DRC context, where out of resources, DRC is rich in natural resources. Most of the cobalt is being found in the DRC. It's being mined there. But then what happens is that external factors have continued to support different groups based on their interests. So it has not been about having Congo that is strong and then there's a coordinated attempt to have a good state building, but it's about which actor, which group works better for their case. And they have also always used the interest, specific interests of different countries, let's say Rwanda or Uganda, or different armed groups within the country as well to perpetuate their interests. So I think while... The interest is also about that the external powers or the U.S. has interventions. We need to also remember that the groups on the ground, those groups on the ground also have their specific interests that relate to their national survival and their own security as they perceive it, but now supported much more by external actors to carry out specific motives within the DRC. The only group that could be described as in any way threatening Uganda's national survival would be Mr. Kony's Lord's Army. But militarily, it hardly exists, although its presence in the bush was used by President Obama to justify a wholesale U.S. Green Beret special forces presence in the whole region. Yes, but the U.S. mission, as you know, when President Trump came to power has been disbanded, but that mission has mainly operated to help to fight against Kony, and it has done a lot of support missions in support of the African kind of coalition against Kony in the region. But as you indicated also, that it is an excuse for an intervention within the region 
But I would like to highlight the fact that it has always been also because of not necessarily justified or necessarily justifiable interest. It's also to say that those interventions occur in the blink of the fact that those African countries, we are thinking that it is of the best interest for them to collaborate with the U.S. in those missions to take out Kony. Well, apparently almost every nation in Africa has found it in its interest to collaborate with the United States AFRICOM organization, the U.S. military command in Africa, which has relationships with all but two or three countries on the continent. Yes, there was an article I actually wrote just last year for the Tana Forum, one of the biggest forums that happen in Africa. It's looking at the foreign bases in Africa. So you see that in Africa, for instance, we had about six or seven foreign bases in one country, situated in one country alone, that is Djibouti. So you also see that there are a lot of American bases all over the continent. And you begin to realize that those bases, they are just platform for extending imperialism and also extending the reach of the U.S. government across the globe. So the major challenge that I continually question is that myopia or some of the challenges why our governments are not looking at the challenge of having those bases there. So for instance, the U.S. based in the Horn of Africa have been used at times for the war in the Middle East and all that. And inadvertently, whether African actors are involved or not, we inadvertently become enemies to the actor they are bombing because we kind of provided a conducive base for those military actors to be present. And it has always become the challenge that are we making enemies of ourselves inadvertently without necessarily doing anything but by opening our borders and opening our grounds and allowing foreign actors to occupy strategic bases from where they carry out attacks. And as you said, most of the interventions or most of the coalitions like AFRIPOL have been organized to give some kind of assurances to the U.S. government that African actors are working towards that. So when we look at it in terms of African solutions, we look at it in the sense that it is working that Africans are beginning to are forming those coalitions, but the challenge is who motivates those solutions and who presses for those solutions and funds it. That is one of the biggest challenges, as you rightly noted. Are Africans angry at their own governments for inviting in and collaborating with these outside militaries, including the former colonial powers? Africans are angry. Africans are really angry about it, and there has been protests and the likes. But two things we need to notice and note here is that, one, their anger has always been against the government, and the government crackdown has been, or oppression, for instance, has been enormous. So at the slightest of protests, the government crackdown against the people has always been very significant. And I think... Gradually, there's been a gradual kind of rethink within the people, a new consciousness that is emerging within the people, that the government belongs to the people. So, for instance, when you see in situations like Sudan, and then let's say also in Tunisia, Algeria, and different other places, you begin to see 
more popular uprisings occurring within the continent. Those are signs that, yeah, they are wanting changes to happen. But because this system that is already supported by external powers, it makes it very challenging for Africans to get a total emancipation in terms of that. And just to note that a lot of policies around external support is being sanctioned by a lot of violence, by state terror and by state capacity to limit their influences or to limit the role of citizens and civil society groups in actually determining that. Just to note that most of the Horn of Africa bases and the bases here in West Africa as well and in the Sahel region, they are always clandestine that are not visible to the ordinary people on a day-to-day basis for people to make informed decisions about or to make informed protests against those kind of things. Yes, should we see these protests as efforts to complete an unfinished decolonization process? Yes, I see that as an ongoing effort to complete decolonization effort, but I also see it as an ongoing tussle to realign, to get a more responsible kind of government. Because I think one of our failures in Africa is that we have not been able to get responsible governments that will put the interests of people over the interests of other external actors. So what Africa is rightly looking for is more responsible governments, but that has not been happening yet. So one of the main things is also to develop a better institution that ensures that African leaders are responsive to the rule of law, they are responsive to the idea of good governance, and that whoever is in power is being checkmated by uh, strong and credible institutions that are not being bought over by patronage networks. That was Ndubisi Christian Ani of the Institute for Security Studies in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Surya Nayak is a black feminist activist, trade unionist, psychoanalytic therapist, and senior lecturer in social work at the University of Salford in Great Britain. Dr. Nayak recently wrote a paper on the Kambahi River Collective and its continued importance to black feminism worldwide. The Kambahi River Collective was formed in America in 1974, and it was a black feminist collective of women, ordinary women, who came together to start to think about issues of race, gender and class and they formed a collective and what they produced through their discussions and their coming together, what is called now the the Kambahi River Collective Manifesto, the collective statement. Now why this is really useful is it's a seminal work, a kind of touchstone, if you like, over the years, over the decades, for other groups, activist groups who are working as collectives to refer to, because there are pointers within that manifesto which are about the struggles and tensions that every single collective goes through, and in particular, a black feminist collective. When I say a black feminist collective, I'm thinking about a collective of women who are thinking about women's issues in terms of feminism and equality, but through the intersectional lens of racism. 
because what the Combahe River Collective of women needed to form their own collective because their issues and concerns were not being heard or addressed in white feminist collectives. Yes, and that collective met for a number of years, but then went into a kind of hiatus. The Combahe River Collective does not exist today in, in its form, although members of the collective still exist and are prominent black feminist scholars. So because it's been the 40th or 41st anniversary, the 40th anniversary of the, the manifesto being published, um, it's like with any 40th anniversary, people have been doing a look, look back. So people like Angela Davis, people like Barbara Smith, people who were involved in the formation of that collective have been talking about how significant it is. Now, the issue you've just raised about the demise of the collective is very, very interesting because it's something I'm picking up in this paper and it's something that I write about again and again. And it's what Patricia Hill Collins says, and she's a very prominent black feminist scholar. Patricia Hill Collins says that the shadow obscuring black feminist intellectual traditions is neither benign nor accidental. In other words, why don't we know about these writings and why haven't the Combahee River Collective's work been in regular circulation and dissemination? But of course, that's the impact of the power knowledge relationship in racism, isn't it? So they don't exist, although they have spawned and given birth to. There has many, many, many black feminist collectives. In fact, I've been a member of a black feminist collective for the last 35 years, and many other women have. So it's an example of a black women's collective where their work and the work of other black women's collectives seems to kind of get buried a bit and not referred to. Yes, the shadow that obscures is cast by someone or some things. Who's casting that shadow? Who's casting the shadow? The shadow is cast by a hierarchy of knowledge and a way of formulating not just a, and I picked this up in the paper and all black feminist work does, the shadow cast is the hierarchy, not just of intellectual cognitive knowledge, but of all the kind of knowledge about the psyche and the emotional self that mainstream psychology and mainstream academia, reflective of the hierarchy in terms of race and white supremacy, that exists generally, socially and economically. You've written a very interesting paper, Occupation of Racial Grief, Loss as a Resource. And there's a lot of stuff just in there, occupation as Mm. a political word. But I'm interested first in what racial grief is. Thinking about racial grief and what racial grief is, is the loss, the fragmentation, the displacement and the mourning and bereavement that go on continually, moment to moment, if not hour to hour and day to day. So we're not just thinking about the loss of a person in death, although we are thinking about that because racism does cause death. We're thinking about all those losses that happen in and through racism. So I'm thinking about racism as a context that produces loss. 
So when I'm talking about racial grief, I'm talking about the grief that comes in and from racism. So I'm thinking about the loss, not just of opportunity and aspiration, but those losses, even between people of colour, those losses because of internalised racist ways of thinking, the loss that's to do with a deprecation and a squashing down of people in all kinds of ways due to racism. But how do you turn now, grief and loss into a resource? Yeah, so what I'm trying to do here in this paper, and I do believe it absolutely, and so does the legacy of critical race and black feminist thinking, is that usually loss is framed as something to be gotten over. Loss is framed as something which we, if we're stuck in loss, if we're stuck in grief, and then we're in melancholia, we're in pathological melancholia. Well, as long as there is racism, there is loss. And there's no getting over it. So the thing I'm wanting to think about is instead of thinking about racial grief as something to be remedied, racial grief as something that needs to be fixed because it is dysfunctional, I'm thinking about racial grief, those losses that are actually at the heart of a mobilization of collective action. It always has been all the way through history, throughout social justice movements. It is what is at the root of oppression that gives birth to something which is of agency, of action. So loss as a resource is thinking about loss due to racism and loss being the consciousness of loss, being a galvanizing force for action and collective action. Yes, if one does not analyze, total up, and get to the nature of losses, one can't formulate demands. That's exactly right. That's exactly right if you're not in touch with it. I mean, it was Marx who said, you've got nothing to lose, but you change. When we come to that realisation. Yeah, yeah. Now, you see why this is really significant as well is because, as we know, there is a disproportionate number of people of colour in the mental health system. And what their conditions of racism becomes a pathologised mental psychiatric condition. One being melancholia, a loss that can't be gotten over. And I'm wanting to look at that and reframe that. Now, there's a bit of a trickiness to this because loss galvanizes. And without loss, we can't be in touch with that which we need to make demands and expectations for in our activism. But what we've got to remember is that those kinds of losses, one, they're not always those losses are experienced in different ways and we need to negotiate that as people together if we're going to have collective action and and not turn into fragmentation between ourselves. Because a kind of divide and rule would be wonderful, wouldn't it, for white supremacists? We need to acknowledge that our losses are different and experienced differently, but also that our actions, our activism, is then pivotal on a dialectic, the dialectic being... The very loss that is creating our demands, our demand is to get rid of the loss. I know that's a bit complicated, but we, I think we need to, and that's where I talk about occupation, inhabit these tensions. 
Yes, you speak of occupying racial grief, and it's fascinating how you use the word occupy in the very active sense, as opposed to being occupied by a hostile power, for example. Absolutely. So the idea of to occupy, to take residence in, to inhabit, yeah, that is a, I look at that in terms of a verb rather than just a noun. And we occupy things in different ways. So we can think of the Latin root of occupy, which is to occupy, which is actually to seize, to take hold of, just like a squatter or as an occupation in terms of a takeover or an occupation in a demonstration to occupy a building as a a means of protest. But I'm also thinking about the active work that hopefully we should be doing collectively together of occupying, existing in the inherent tensions of loss and what we do with it and thinking about it rather than a resolving of it or there is one truth of it, i.e. to get over it. That leads me to, well, what does it mean to occupy the inherent tensions of loss, racial grief? And that's where I argue for a connectivity, to be connected to the writings and experience, the wisdom of black feminism. And a case, an example of that is the Combahe River Collective Statement, their manifesto. And that's why it has to be re-enlivened periodically. Periodically, for me, and I make the suggestion in the paper, is that we don't sit down at a meeting without having the writings and wisdom of the activists, the anti-racist activists that have gone before us. So I put forward that actually rereading texts and writing our own texts is not some kind of luxury. It's not something that we do on the side if we've got a bit of time. It is absolutely, should be absolutely woven in and legitimised as part of activism. So that when we sit round a table and talk, when we're formulating our plans, we go back to the writings of Audre Lorde, of Angela Davis, of all, you know, June Jordan, of anyone that's written things that sustain where, because As Audrey Lorde says, she says, you know, we don't need to reinvent the wheel every time we go for a loaf of bread. This disconnection from our legacy of wisdom and the legacy of other activists is part of racist, fragmentary kind of structuring of us. You write that having justice rather than power should be the foundation of anti-colonial feminist action. But don't you have to get power to achieve justice? What that's about is, of course, power is a very complicated thing, isn't it? There's absolutely nothing wrong with power. We all have power. Um, It's the barriers to us exercising our power that needs to be tackled. And that's where the link to justice is. Now, what Angela Davis, and she does this after decades of thinking, and we know, you know, she, I mean, she's been imprisoned for her work. She's, she's written and written and written for decades in the seminal work on race, gender, and class. What she says in one of her most recent books is she says that we need to have justice as the focus and not power. 
because if we start to think about, well, it's about power, and then we start to what Audrey, do what Audrey Lord warns us against, where she says the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Justice is the redistribution of power in a way that appeals to difference as equals. So it's about equality. The stripping of people's power is about lack of justice. You speak of black feminist mobilization as being therapeutic in some kind of mental health sense or as therapeutic really in, in a larger sense, making the whole body politic or the black body politic at least healthier. Yes, I do. However, what I'm not is sentimental or idealistic about this. And I use the Combi Horizi Collective Manifesto and their experience as my touchstone here, as well as many other writings. But what the Combi Horizi Collective say, and it's very interesting to say, you know, at last we found each other. However, what we started to experience was our differences between us. So there has to be spaces where for example, black women need to be able to come together to talk. And there's a different kind of talk. There's a different kind of talk between people of colour and a mixed audience, just as there's a different kind of talk when you've got women together and then when you've got all or mixed men and women and transgender people together. There is a need sometimes for separative spaces. However, let's not idealise those spaces. But those spaces will bring up tensions and there will be losses in those spaces because I might idealise and think, oh, well, we're all going to be sisters together and get on well. It's going to be absolutely lovely. And it isn't. We need to negotiate our differences. But it is a precious space. What I do absolutely highlight in this paper is the need for solidarity and connectivity. Collective mobilisation is the only way forward. And of course, in globalisation, which is very different than when the Combahee River Collective was writing in 1974, we've got a much more nuanced and more active idea of what a global movement, a global 21st century movement of black feminism would look like. You seem to warn against folks making what you call spurious claims about who is more or less oppressed when white women and black women get together. But we do know the history of affirmative action, certainly in the United States. And in that history, white women have been the prime beneficiaries by many measures. Now, that may not mean that they are more or less oppressed, but it does certainly mean that they have more means of redress for their oppression. Absolutely. Now, I think you're conflating two different things. One is the notion of a hierarchy of oppression. What we do know is any form of hierarchy and any form of hierarchical thinking is oppressive. It can only lead to oppression. Even the shape of a hierarchy in a triangle only allows a few in the apex and a lot at the bottom. Yeah? Hierarchical thinking would be an example of Audre Lorde's master's tool that creates the master's house. 
It's very difficult to get out of hierarchical thinking because that's the way we've been socialized. But the minute we start to think someone's more or less oppressed, then we're into trying to have gradients of what is oppression. Oppression is oppression is oppression. Just like someone is, we can't say someone's a little bit pregnant or a little bit dead. Yeah. Oppression is oppression. So that's one perspective. That's one element, I think, of what you just talked about. Then there's the next element. There's the element of, well, different groups have excluded and taken advantage of levels of privilege that they have. For example, white women may have the complication of being oppressed through patriarchy, but my goodness, they have the privilege of being white. As Audre Lorde says, the entrapments that are experienced by black and white women are different, which is why black feminism is not white feminism in blackface. Yeah? We have to look at the intersectionality of race with gender. And as Sojourner Truth said in Ohio in 1851, which is when she says, hey, ain't I a woman? That was in a feminist congress where white women were asking for the vote. And she stands there and says, well, hey, ain't I a woman? Because they did not see her as a woman. They didn't invite her. She wasn't included as a black slave woman. I mean, the whole point of black feminism is because feminism per se has been so fragmentary and exclusionary. Now, those of us who are of a certain age remember when in movement politics, the sisters did all the work and the men were the spokespersons and the stars of the movement. Is that changing in a fundamental way? No, I think patriarchy has a grip as it always has. It still has a firm grip, patriarchy has. There's just different manifestations of it. But you will never, ever, patriarchy will never, ever silence the voices of black women because they refuse to be silenced. But it's still a struggle. Audre Lorde is a huge figure in this subject. Tell us about her. So Audre Lorde, a black feminist, lesbian activist, was, in fact, one of her most, for me, influential pieces of work was her work called Sister Outsider, where she spoke in detail about the hierarchy of impression. She spoke in detail about the relationships between black women to black women and black women and black men as well, and what racism does generally. But she speaks in a very poetical way a very poetical to the point direct way and true to black feminist methodology everything is rooted in and through social justice so her writings as well as other black feminist writings come out of oppression racial oppression in order to confront it always with activism as a touchstone You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.